Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Chapter 6. Lone Voice in the Wilderness. Daryl DeVivo was a junior at Amherst College in the late 1950s when his brother, younger by three years, contracted transverse mellitus. That's a swelling along a portion of the spinal cord, causing paralysis. His brother was transferred to the Massachusetts General Hospital, and there he was treated by Phil Dodge, a renowned pediatric neurologist. Because DeVivo was not far away, he frequently checked in on his brother, and he got to know Dodge. He admired him, found him charismatic, and deeply empathetic, as many pediatric doctors seem to be. DeVivo was already considering going to medical school, and Dodge connected with that, and he invited Daryl to spend a year with him, learning, at Mass General. Beyond his rounds at the hospital, Dodge would also see private patients in his office on Fridays. And he often brought Daryl in to see interesting or complex cases. And that's where Daryl first encountered spinal muscular atrophy. And so on one occasion, now uh, 60 years ago, in 1960, he said, I want you to see this patient who has a rare neurological disease. It looks like muscular dystrophy, but it's different. And we don't know as much about it as we would like, but I think it's a particularly interesting problem. Uh, and so that was my first experience with a patient with spinal muscular atrophy. I was quite fascinated by it. And uh, Phil Dodge pointed out a number of things, including the fact that this presumably is a disease that affects the nerves, the motor neurons. But in fact, clinically, it seems to affect the proximal muscles, the, the girdle muscles, the pelvic mm -hmm. and shoulder muscles, to a greater degree than the distal muscles. So it's a curious feeling. And Phil focused on that and spent some time talking with him about that and was puzzled himself as to why that, in fact, seems to be the case. Spinal muscular atrophy more than 65 years after Verdnick and Hoffman had published their initial papers describing the disease, was still in the dark ages. Little was known about the causes, and certainly there were no treatments. Daryl went on to medical school and became a celebrated child neurologist. He has contributed hundreds of peer-reviewed articles on pediatric disease to the medical community and served as co-editor of a staple textbook in the field titled Neuromuscular Disorders of Infancy, Childhood, and Adolescence. He has seen SMA cases throughout his career, and for much of it, the interactions with patients and their families were among the bleakest, most heart-wrenching of his life. For the most prevalent type of SMA, three-fourths of the children die before their second birthday. So to Daryl, it always felt the same. First explaining the diagnosis, then admitting to parents that medicine could do nothing to prevent the disease's progression, and then offering some palliative care until the end. He hated it. It's not exactly what he envisioned when he went to medical school. This isn't the way doctors like to spend their time. From Nature Biotechnology, I'm Brady Huggett, and this is Hope, Lies, and Dreams.
After the Alka Forsen failure just before 2000, and the investigation around the data fraud from the Novartis Partnered Program, ISIS had understood its second-generation drugs were more easily reaching and staying stable in the liver, and that had opened the door to diseases that could be treated by targeting that organ. The company needed someone to head up this program, and Stan turned to Roseanne. And then the decision to put Roseanne in charge of it was quite controversial because, you know, she wasn't trained as a cardiovascular pharmacologist, um, but I, I knew she'd do a good job with yeah. it. There were people in the company with experience more aligned to this new program than Roseanne, but Stan wasn't convinced anyone else was up to the task, he told me. Or ISIS could have gone out and hired someone, but Stan had learned that it took longer to teach a newcomer the intricacies of Anasense technology than it did to refocus that knowledge on a new indication. And he knew what he had in Roseanne, someone who would manage a team well and push for innovation. And finally, he understood his decision could look like nepotism, but he was the one in charge, after all, so let them talk. He named his wife the head of the cardiovascular program. Roseanne put together a small team and began to consider their next steps. So I spent uh, probably the first six months uh, so that was 1999, December, that happened. And then so I spent about six months, you know, better understanding what the liver does. Of course, I knew it was wonderful and did so many wonderful metabolic things. Uh-huh. And just researched the liver and realized that um, the, the liver made these wonderful things called apolipoproteins, which carried all of the fats throughout the body, lipids, and realized that there were a ton of apolipoproteins that I could target. With two people in her group, they identified 20 to 30 targets they might hit with ISIS's second-generation antisense oligonucleotides. One of the early targets was the gene product apolipoprotein B, nicknamed ApoB. Building an oligonucleotide that inhibited the synthesis of the isoform ApoB100 showed immediate benefit in animal models, quickly reducing lipid levels in the blood. That benefit translated to human studies in phase one. It was remarkable, Roseanne said a straight line from conception of the drug to patients. The company was certain mipamersin, as they called the compound, was a winner. But developing it would cost money, the constant thorn in ISIS's side. ISIS turned to Symphony Capital, which formed a unit called Symphony Genisys, and seeded it with $75 million to be used for mipamersin and other products focused on metabolic disease. In return, Symphony held all drug rights. This was a somewhat unusual setup for a biotech. But then again, ISIS was used to getting money any way it could. The company's second-generation drugs in general were beginning to show promise. At the top of that was mipamersin, but the full pipeline, across cardiovascular indications, metabolic disease, cancer, and other areas, was more than 15 deep. And these early programs were helping to produce the one thing ISIS needed to convince an unbelieving public. Here's Stan. And as you know, there was what, 15, 20 years of extreme skepticism about innocence, and we were the lone voice in the wilderness. So everything, everything rode on both advancing the technology and proving to skeptics that we were having innocence effects in the clinic. And so it was Mipomersin, the, the clinical yeah. data with Mipomersin, and, and then the backup information in with various other drugs that we had in cells and animals. That convinced at least some skeptics, actually a small fraction, uh, that that antisense was real. With these new data being produced, 
ISIS again drew interest from pharma. In May 2007, it announced a three-year partnership with Bristol-Myers Squibb to develop antisense drugs around the target PCSK9, which is linked to cholesterol levels. That deal brought ISIS $15 million immediately and a promise of research funding. It was followed by a licensing with Johnson & Johnson unit Ortho McNeil, in which Ortho got rights to two of ISIS's diabetes drugs and paid $45 million up front, and potentially five times that much in later payments, based on milestones. ISIS used that money to help buy back rights to its metabolic drugs from the Symphony Agreement. It cost ISIS $120 million to do so. But when rights were back in-house, ISIS was free to license it to a partner. Then, in a deal announced early in 2008, ISIS signed with Genzyme, a biotech company in Cambridge, Massachusetts, which had made its name developing therapies for rare diseases in children. It had 10,000 employees worldwide and pulled in $3.5 billion in sales that year, the majority of it coming from its groundbreaking, life-saving enzyme replacement drugs. It was run by a well-known and well-liked CEO, Henry Termier. Genzyme, in other words, was a biotech success story, flying high and flush with cash, looking to expand its pipeline. It seemed the perfect partner for ISIS. The deal centered around Mipamersin after its promising phase two studies. Genzyme bought $150 million in ISIS stock and paid another $175 million as an upfront fee. There was more than $1.5 billion attached to development and sales milestones if and when Mipamersin got approved. Sales revenue would be split between the companies. Though the contract called for ISIS itself to invest $75 million in developing Mipamersin, afterward Genzyme would fuel the rest. The deal had the largest potential payout ever for ISIS and was one of the largest in biotech at that time. It was also Roseanne's stamp on the company, her mark on its history. Mipamersin was my drug, she told me. She'd found it, nurtured it, readied it for partnering. The Genzyme deal and all that money does not happen without Roseanne. Mipamersin, Stan told me, saved the company. Poetic, he said, considering some had doubted his decision to name Roseanne as head of the cardiovascular unit. On the strength of the new deals and all the money they brought in, ISIS finished 2008 with a net loss for the year of just $12 million. And there's more good news. The IBIS unit, now called IBIS Biosciences, had progressed into something of tangible value with needs greater than ISIS could fill. Here's Dave Ecker. We decided it was time to spin it out or have it acquired. And so this is now all the way up to 2009 after, you know, $100 million worth of government investment. We had investment from CDC, from NIH, from uh, uh, a lot from DARPA, a lot from other agencies of the government. And eventually Abbott raised their hand and said, we'd like to buy this. So that's when I had left the company because it was... Um, part of the um, expectation of Abbott that I would go there and take my whole research group and take all the technology. Here's Stan talking about that transaction. Uh, we then put a campaign together to sell it. And Abbott was keenly interested. And at that time, we were running out of money. And so uh, we sold it for $215 million and some residual rights, both because we didn't we, 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 we weren't capable of doing it. We didn't have the money, and we needed those dollars to fund Mipamersin. We would have failed without that $215 million. We would have run out of cash. If Lynn Parshall saved ISIS through her fundraising efforts after the clinical blow-ups, 
And if Roseanne saved the company by developing the Mipamersin program that earned the massive Genzyme deal, and if Dave Ecker's IBIS unit saved the company from running out of cash, then this tells you that ISIS was in constant need of saving. The company could always see its own demise just beyond the horizon. Indeed, at the end of 2008, 20 years after founding, ISIS had accumulated a net loss of $840 million without a single viable drug to its name. No wonder the general public was so dismissive. No wonder Antisense was so doubted. No wonder ISIS was the lone voice in the wilderness. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM. Unfortunately, the high point of the Genzyme-ISIS partnership might have been at the announcement. Before six months had passed, the companies had already shuffled the terms, calling for ISIS to pay $125 million toward development instead of $75 million. Indeed, ISIS did need the money from the IBIS sale. And there were problems arising in the Mipamersin trial data. The drug was being developed for familial hypercholesterolemia, sometimes called FH, a genetic disorder where those afflicted struggle to metabolize low-density lipoprotein cholesterol. The disease comes in two forms, heterozygous and homozygous, with the homozygous version occurring in just 1 in 1 million people and the heterozygous 1 in 500. Those with homozygous FH can have LDL cholesterol levels as high as 600 milligrams per deciliter, and they are at risk for coronary events, heart attacks, and early death. Heterozygous patients have LDL levels about half of that. During the drug's four phase three trials, its profile slowly came apart. It hit all endpoints in both the heterozygous and homozygous FH indications with the expected injection site reactions and occasional flu-like symptoms as side effects. But there were also troubling elevations of liver transaminases. And when the companies presented trial data, ISIS's stock sank each time. Analysts and Wall Street weighed the hepatotoxicity against the benefits of the drug and took into account the cheap, abundant supply of statins already available to patients and didn't like the chances of market uptake. But it was clear Mipamersin actually worked. In the homozygous FH trial, where the patients were most at risk, enrollees saw a 25% decrease in LDL cholesterol versus placebo, an average drop of more than 100 milligrams per deciliter. This was real progress, and Genzyme and ISIS prepared the regulatory filing in that indication, thinking the FDA would be lenient about the liver issues when the need of the patients was so high. They were right, mostly. The FDA's Endocrinologic and Metabolic Drugs Advisory Committee voted in October 2012 in favor of the drug, 
by then-branded Canamro, but by a thin 9-6 to margin. The underwhelming vote sank the mood around Canamro, and it sank further that year when the European Medicines Agency panel voted against it, saying that the liver toxicities overshadowed any benefits Canamro presented. The drug's prospects suddenly seemed so grim that a class-action lawsuit was filed against ISIS, claiming that executives made false and misleading statements about Canamro's safety and efficacy, causing stockholders to believe the drug would be approved when surely ISIS had known it would not. Yet that suit was made irrelevant in January 2013, when the FDA approved Canamro and homozygous FH. The drug was given a black box warning, a bolded square up front and center on the label, loudly flagging the risk of hepatotoxicity. It is the FDA's way of alerting prescribers to serious side effects, and never what a company hopes for. Still, Canamro was the first approved systemic antisense drug, as the media correctly noted, and it had a clear mechanism of action that could be attributed to nothing but antisense. That was not lost on Stan and the people at ISIS who had worked on it for years. And it certainly was not lost on Roseanne. Since the fourth grade, she'd wanted to make drugs that would help patients. And now she'd done it. How, many, how often does, does a scientist and pharma get to have a drug approved? I, I think it's very rare. It is very rare. And yeah. so it's yeah. really cool that, that I was able to do that in my small team. And it's very validating. It was really, it's an amazing thing, actually. Um, it's the most rewarding feeling. It just makes me tear up thinking about that we actually do help sick people, and it's not just in an abstract way. People say, you let me live a life, you know, and you help my family do this. It's, it's incredible. Participants from the clinical trials visited ISIS and walked up to her, thanked her for what she'd done for them, thanked her for the years of effort. And even beyond that, the approval was a stake in the ground for antisense, she told me. Canamro had changed theory to fact. Second-generation antisense could work. they just proved it. The drug was also cleared in Mexico, Argentina, South Korea, and Peru. ISIS had $825 million tied to commercial milestones for it, and they awaited the windfall. But sales were never there. The black box warning plagued the drug, and patients had other ways to deal with their condition, including statins. And by mid-2015, the first PCSK9 inhibitor, alirocumab, an antibody drug sold as Priolent by Sanofi. Regardless, ISIS's hopes for the heterozygous FH indication never materialized, and ISIS and Genzyme dissolved their agreement in January 2016. The drug was finished, a second antisense product approved that never went anywhere. There were a lot of reasons it played out this way, including Mipamersin's poor safety profile, but Stan had a ready culprit at hand, Genzyme. I do blame them. I think they didn't understand the market, didn't understand what was required, lost commitment well before they should have. But, um, you, you know, we argued, we, we pleaded, we did everything we could do, and they finally gave up on it. And, you know, then we tried to find other partners, but it was hopeless, and so Canamro was lost. By the time the partnership ended, Canamro had a bad reputation, and ISIS sold it to Castle Therapeutics, for a paltry $15 million. To be fair, by the end of the partnership, Genzyme had become a very different company. In 2009, it discovered a contamination issue at the production sites for two of its biggest selling and revenue-generating drugs, Serazyme and Fabrazyme. The company was forced to invalidate entire batches, and that news, plus the lost revenue, hammered Genzyme's stock. Activist shareholders moved in, 
including the notorious corporate raider Carl Icahn, who began to call for Henry Tremere's head. Though the contamination issues were eventually resolved, Genzyme's shrunken market cap brought bidders, and by 2011, farmer giant Sanofi Aventis had purchased Genzyme for more than $20 billion. After the buyout, Genzyme remained a standalone unit of Sanofi, but Tremere, who had run the company for 25 years, resigned as CEO. Stan and Henry had liked each other, had a mutual respect, and with him gone, the relationship between Isis and Genzyme seemed to sour. And we really didn't get along with Genzyme. We, we interacted as negatively as, any, as, as we have with any company in all the deals we've done, way more negatively, across the board, every element of the company. And, and so it was constantly fighting. The anti-sense field took another hit in 2012 when Genta filed for bankruptcy, finally stepping off the stage completely. It was the last of the core companies formed in the initial rush of interest around Anisense. And with it gone, Isis was truly the sole survivor. Hidden in the original Genzyme Canamro deal were a handful of Isis's central nervous system compounds. They were early stage, without much yet in the way of data, and Genzyme never seemed to take them seriously. When it came time to consider picking up the options, it had made a half-hearted bid. The actual CNS program was actually owned by Genzyme. The original CNS program? Yeah, it, it, was, it, was a, it was a part of the just, you know, things Henry wanted me to throw in to sell the deal more broadly to the public. They had rights to Smenraza and the SMA program. Oh, I did not know that. They oh. had, and they offered for... Spinraza, and now they were in hard times because they had that uh, had that uh, FDA, you know, problem with their manufacturing, and they were getting beaten up, and they had no money. So they offered us five million dollars, and we laughed at them. And so we and we were we wouldn't work with them anyway, so we walked away. And, so and they they had they had an option to pick up Spinraza. They, they offered five. Did. Same, and you said no. Yeah, and a couple of others, and. and had they offered us a hundred million, they they would have had Spinraza really cheap. The central nervous system. It was a brand new area for ISIS and for Antisense. ISIS's CNS programs included a skunkworks project being run by Frank Bennett, aimed at spinal muscular atrophy, and it would produce a compound eventually named Spinraza. No one at ISIS thought much of the program yet, and certainly they didn't at Genzyme. But Frank did. Understanding why requires going back 25 years. Before 1995, about three-fourths of the type 1 subset of SMA patients, which is the most prevalent type, died before two years of age. The remaining quarter died after that two-year period. Doctors focused on palliative care, but still the children tended to struggle with eating and breathing due to weak thorax muscles. They suffered from respiratory infections and were often undernourished. And these were the issues that led to their deaths. It had long been known the disease was hereditary, but in 1995, a research team at L'Institut National de la Santé in France, led by Susie Lefebvre, published a paper titled Identification and Characterization of a Spinal Muscular Atrophy Determining Gene. Suddenly, there it was. It was a watershed moment in the history of SMA. 
Forever the healthcare field had been treating the symptoms, and now, laid out in that paper, they had the cause. The gene is survival motor neuron 1, or SMN1, and in healthy individuals, it produces high levels of the survival motor neuron protein needed for normal muscular function. When this gene is defective, it does not produce the SMN protein, and spinal muscular atrophy arises. Muscles are not able to function, they atrophy, and in the strongest cases, this leads to death. But there is a backup copy of that gene called SMN2, and it is capable of producing very low levels of the protein. The prevalence of that backup gene is what defines the severity of spinal muscular atrophy. Type 1 patients who have one copy of the backup SMN2 gene tend to be diagnosed in their first six months and often die before their second birthday. This group makes up 60% of all cases. Type 2 have two copies and are usually diagnosed later when they fail to meet progression milestones. These children usually are unable to walk and require a wheelchair. Type 3 can sometimes be diagnosed as late as the teenage years, and those afflicted often regress to life in a wheelchair. Type 4 is the rarest version and is diagnosed in adulthood, usually after 18 years of age but before 35. These individuals have mild motor impairment. The discovery of the gene was hope. Here's Daryl DeVivo. So after 1995, people became more optimistic. Wow, we found the gene. Now we might be able to find a treatment. So let's step in and do what we can to support these babies. So now we were increasingly being proactive in supporting their respiratory needs before they had respiratory failure. And also putting in gastrostomy tubes to nourish them so that they wouldn't run the risk of not being able to chew or swallow or aspirate into their lungs because they couldn't swallow it very satisfactorily. And those two changes alone changed the mortality from 75% to 25% in the two-year period. And now, researchers and specialists like Daryl DeVivo began to push the National Institutes of Health for more attention on the disease. At that time, in 1999, we said, you know... You should have a study, uh, a seminar, a uh, kind of a brainstorming session for spinal muscular atrophy. It's a it's the second most common autosomal recessive disease. It's monogenic. We have a second target. We have a primary gene that's mutated and causes this disease. We've got a backup gene that modifies this phenotypic severity, the SMN2 gene. It's ripe for study and development of an effective treatment. And so Storylander said, we agree with you. And John Porter, who was there at the time, said, let's create a one-day meeting and we'll invite people, including a fellow named Adrian Craner, very good in RNA biology, but he doesn't know anything about disease or anything. So we'll invite him to come Adrian came to the meeting and he sat there and he listened. And he said, I was fascinated listening to this and then learning that this disease is the result of something wrong in RNA splicing. Adrian Craner was born in Uruguay. During his high school education, he came across Gregor Mendel, the scientist from Brno, Czech Republic, who is sometimes called the father of genetics. Mendel's work and theories hooked Craner and confirmed his desire to be a scientist. He won a scholarship to Columbia University, where he majored in biochemistry, and then went to Harvard for his PhD and studied biochemistry there, too. 
While there, he worked with Tom Maniitis, who was studying the mechanisms of RNA transcription and splicing. That led Craner to a career of trying to understand RNA splicing, he told me, almost the entirety of which has been spent at Cold Spring Harbor in New York. Craner had been unofficially mentored by Richard Roberts, who shared the Nobel Prize in Physiology or Medicine in 1993 with Phil Sharp for the discovery of introns in eukaryotic DNA and the mechanisms of gene splicing. This background made Craner a perfect invitee for the one-day symposium on SMA. At the event, he got an early look at a paper that would soon be published in the Proceedings in the National Academy of Sciences, titled, A Single Nucleotide in the SMN Gene Regulates Splicing and is Responsible for Spinal Muscular Atrophy. The paper turned a light on in Adrian's head. So, and, and I went to this meeting, it was before the papers were published, so it was a good opportunity to, to find out about it uh, early. And I knew right then that it, it made a lot of sense for us to work on SMA. The mechanism of splicing is a normal occurrence that underlies the expression of almost every gene. Craner himself uses an analogy of books and a library to explain it. Consider the genome to be a library containing some 25,000 books. Each book is a recipe for a protein, and reading the chapters of that book provides instructions on how to make it. Yet there are also nonsensical pages that do nothing but separate the chapters, he said. In the normal process leading up to protein production, a mechanism removes those nonsensical pages and allows the recipe to be read cleanly and in sequence and a protein to be produced. Those nonsensical pages, the non-coding segments of a gene, are called introns. Exons are the coding segments used to create mature RNA that is ready for translation. The process of removing introns is called splicing. It is a crucial element of protein production, and Adrian Craner had spent nearly his entire career studying it. Adrian left that meeting in 1999 with the understanding that between the two SMN genes, there was just a single nucleotide difference in exon 7, and that resulted in a different splicing pattern. This single splicing defect in this single gene made SMA the number one genetic killer of babies less than two years of age. Adrian Craner began to immerse himself in the disease and its communities, attending meetings sponsored by groups like Fight SMA, learning all he could. If the discovery of the gene behind SMA brought new attention to the disease, it didn't bring enough. Or that was the feeling of Dinakar Singh and his wife, Lauren Eng. In March 2000, the couple had a daughter. They named her Arya, and she developed normally, as SMA children do, sitting and crawling in line with other kids her age. When she lagged in learning to walk, her pediatrician thought Arya was simply a late bloomer. Yet, in August 2001, while at a party in New York, a doctor friend of Lauren and Dinakar's saw Arya stumbling around the room and was worried enough to recommend they take her to a neurologist. A month later, the parents had their diagnosis. Lauren and Dinakar, like many, many parents before them, were crushed when they learned that there were no treatments for SMA and little being done to generate one. What made it worse was that Lauren was already pregnant with their second child. But what set them apart is that they were wealthy, well-educated, and well-connected. Dinakar was a trader for Goldman Sachs, Lauren had been an investment banker and had an MBA and a master's in education, and the couple was active in elite New York City circles. And now, they were desperate. They began seeking out the best for Aria and made their way to Daryl DeVivo at Columbia. 
I had just gotten back from a trip to China with my wife. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we actually flew back into New York just after 9-11. It was a terribly depressing moment. We uh, arrived and I went back to the office. And, and a few weeks later, the president of the hospital, who had been the former dean, Herb Pardis, called me and said, Daryl, I have this family that called me last night. They're important family members, important people here in New York. And and they have an urgent need to see you. And I said, well, have them come tomorrow morning. And the father was upset when he told me this story. He said, yesterday or the day before, I got a call from an orthopedist saying, we know what your daughter has. She has spinal muscular atrophy. It's not going to affect her brain. She's just not going to be able to play baseball or anything. And he was really offended by that. He said, my goodness, what a way to announce on the telephone that our daughter has something that I've never even heard of. Yeah. And the mother and father, being just remarkably intelligent, you know, immediately went on the Internet. They digested everything they could overnight And so the next day they came to see me and they were already remarkably informed on the subject of SMA. And I examined this young girl who was 18 months old and she could walk, but just barely. So she was really a rather severe type 3A. In any event, I saw her and I talked with the mother and the father and I said, well, gee whiz, yeah, yeah, your daughter, I think, does have spinal muscular atrophy. There are some tests we can do to, you know, be absolutely certain. But I explained, you know, it's an autosomal recession. I said, yes, we know all about that. We've read all about it. And the mother is sitting there fully pregnant, ready to deliver in a few days. And that was the beginning, I think, of a very uh, meaningful interaction with the parents of this young girl. A type 3A meant symptoms usually show up before age three, and the patient will eventually lose the ability to stand. This was terrible news, softened somewhat by the confirmation that their second child, a boy born not long after this initial meeting, inherited both normal alleles and was free of SMA. And when that fear was alleviated, Dinakar and Lauren focused on doing whatever they could for Arya. And so Lauren and Dinakar that came to me and said, well, what, what else can we do to, you know, move things along to see if we can do something to help Aria and the other children with this? And I said, well, there's this organization called Families of SMA. So they went actually and spent about a year interacting with the families of SMA. And uh, Lauren and Dinica thought they wanted to go more central and go directly to the federal government And they were well-connected, so they had contacts in the White House and in Congress, and increasingly they got to know everybody at the NIH. Families of SMA was a grassroots organization. It put on road races and had bake sales to raise funds. It built a much-needed community around the disease. But Dinakar and Lauren wanted something different, something specifically targeted on drugs and a cure. And then they came back to me and said, you know, we want to create our own foundation. I said, you know, that's a lot of work. I yeah. said, not only that, you're living with this disease 
not only with your child, but with everybody else related to the foundation. And they said, I know, we've thought about it, and we've talked with other people and so forth, and we're going to do it. So in 2003, they created the SMA Foundation, which was based in New York City. They headquartered it at Columbia and asked me to direct it. With Daryl directing, the SMA Foundation founded the Pediatric Neuromuscular Clinical Research Network, which brought together SMA clinical experts from Columbia University Medical Center, from Children's Hospital Philadelphia, where neurologist Richard Finkel presided, and from Boston Children's Hospital with Basil Darris, and also a data coordinator center at the University of Rochester. They enrolled patients and established a standard of care across sites. Referrals came in from all over the Northeast, and soon they had 500 patients in the network. The foundation began to put money into generating mouse models for SMA for preclinical testing, available for whomever needed them. And they also recruited evaluators, physical therapists who would be able to gauge how these patients were doing if they were getting weaker or stronger. And they established better outcome measures so they could more easily collect data on all three prevalent types of SMA patients. All of this was preparation. If a drug came along, if some company could conceive and develop a compound that could make any difference against this disease, they would be in a position to recruit patients, to run trials, and collect the information that might, one day, win an approval from the FDA. Lauren and Denikar began to work this second angle. They didn't think SMA got enough funding from the NIH. It was just $13 million a year at the time. When Lauren and Denikar went to Congress to lobby for more, they were sometimes told they would get better traction if they had a celebrity face at the front of the disease, like Michael J. Fox with Parkinson's, or Christopher Reeves had been for spinal cord injuries. SMA didn't have that. Where would the celebrities be, considering the disease killed so many children before they ever got a start in life? But Lauren kept hammering anyway. She got 50 scientists, including Nobel winner James Watson, to petition the NIH for more funds for SMA. She paid a lobbyist to combine efforts from various SMA support groups, and they sent more than 400 pieces of mail to Congress. Lauren and Denikar met with U.S. Senators Arlen Specter and Tom Harkin, and they told their story wherever they could. The New York Times, Forbes, The Today Show, Nightline, The Pittsburgh Post-Gazette. Denikar bankrolled all of it. He had quit Goldman Sachs and started a new fund and told Forbes magazine in 2005 that he would put every penny from that fund into SMA research if he thought it would hasten a cure. That was not hyperbole. Former Goldman Sachs partner Dinakar Singh is racing to find a cure for his daughter before it's too late. She's suffering from a disease that was largely ignored by biotech firms, even though a number of breakthroughs made it ripe for drug development. Singh's efforts are featured in the current Bloomberg Markets magazine. Gigi Stone is here to tell us all about it. Gigi. Eric, imagine having all the money in the world practically and not being able to fix the one thing in your life that matters most to you, the health of your child. Well, it's a life calling for Dinakar Singh, founder of TPG Axon Capital, a hedge fund with more than $8 billion in assets. And Singh has spent nearly $100 million of his own money to create and fund the Spinal Muscular Atrophy Foundation. And now, finally, some threads began to braid. Adrian Craner, upon leaving that NIH meeting in 1999, was focused on the disease. Neurological disorders are notoriously hard to crack, but this was a problem worth studying. He started looking for funding and earned a grant from Fight SMA in 2000. While attending a Fight SMA meeting sometime around the end of 2001, he met Lauren Eng, 
who had recently gotten Arya's diagnosis. They stayed in close contact, seeing each other at community meetings. And after Lauren and Denikar launched the SMA Foundation, he attended those events too. The SMA Foundation in all provided some $200,000 to Adrian's lab. Along the way, he secured money from the National Institutes of Health, the National Institute of Neurological Disorders and Stroke, the Muscular Dystrophy Association, and Fight SMA, among others. And he began to publish his findings. In 2002, his lab published their first paper on SMA in Nature Genetics, titled Disruption of an SF2-ASF-Dependent Exonic Splicing Enhancer in SMN2 Causes Spinal Muscular Atrophy in the Absence of SMN1. In 2003, they published in Nature Structural Biology a paper showing proof of concept for a potential therapeutic titled Correction of Disease-Associated Exon Skipping by Synthetic Exon-Specific Activators. The group also filed a patent around the discovery. Frank Bennett, laboring over his skunkworks project in ISIS's small CNS program, saw the paper and the patent. This was close to what he was working on, and he long admired Craner's research. So I've known Adrian's name since I was a graduate student. We worked on similar projects, um, and he was a graduate student in uh, Tom Maniotis' lab at Harvard, and I was a graduate student in a lab in Baylor. And the work that they were doing on characterizing the mechanisms of splicing was very visible work and, and um, um, you know, uh, had a trem- tremendous amount of respect for the work that they were doing. And, and so I've known uh, about Adrian for uh, since like early 80s. Um, you know, so then you fast forward a number of years when we started working on antisense technology and uh, uh, he had published a paper on SMA uh, using a, t- a very similar technology to what we're, we're using that we owned at the time. And um, he had done a proof of concept study that was published. And uh, so it it caught my attention. And uh, at the same time, we were working in the CNS uh, with Don Cleveland and had already generated some data that showed that uh, we could get effective delivery. And so between those two uh, data points, I, I decided to reach out to Adrian to see if he'd be interested in collaborating. A horrendous disease without a single therapeutic had finally been given a root cause, and it included a splicing error. That discovery had attracted one of the world's thought leaders on splicing. His work, in turn, had attracted the attention of a company that had worked for 25 years to make antisense stable and potent in the body, and a researcher there working on delivering drugs to the central nervous system. They didn't know it yet, but pieces were dropping into place to do something monumental. There were a lot of other people who would need to put their blood, sweat, and tears into this, but it was getting close. Thanks to Stan Crook, now and always. Thanks to Roseanne Crook for her memories on developing Canamro. To Dave Ecker for his memories on Ibis to Daryl DeVivo for discussing his career and treating SMA, to Adrian Craner for sharing his expertise on splicing, to Frank Bennett for providing the details on the CNS program, audio clip on Dinakar Singh and the SMA Foundation taken from Bloomberg. Of particular use to this chapter was an article in Forbes titled For Aria, written in 2005 by Robert Langreth. Rest in peace to Henry Tamir, who died in 2017. If you're ever in Cambridge, 
Look for the statue of him in Henry A. Tremere Square. Rest in peace to Paul Zemesnik, who died in 2009. Sound mix and original theme by Brian Flood. All art created by Aaron DeWalt. Hope Lies in Dreams was written and produced by me, Brady Huggett. Go to the homepage of Nature Biotechnology to find the landing page for this podcast, which includes a list of sources, historical photos, and a transcript of this and the previous five chapters. Chapter 7 will be out in a week. Until then.